0: Exodus chapter 33 is where we're going to be. You guys can open up there. We'll spend most of our time in there this morning. That's where we will spend just about all of it, except toward the end. Getting dangerously close to the end of this book now. I've got a friend who has won uh, an insane amount of contests. I don't know if you have friends that just seem to have crazy good luck like that. Uh, he, He has won... So many contests that I think I saw him post a couple years on Facebook that it's something uh, in the neighborhood of uh, six or seven years in a row that he has had to report contest earnings and winnings on his, his W-2 at the end of the year. Uh, lots of money he's had to report. And uh, a few years ago, I mean, it was uncanny. You'd be driving down the road and you'd hear on the radio like, oh, wait a minute, that's him again. He's winning something else. I thought there was limits on how often you could win prizes from these things, and how does this guy get his phone call answered and nobody else can. He won all kinds of contests, and it was uh, a few years ago that he won what is the, uh, the, the biggest of the big. Now, you have to understand, he fills out everything. That car you walk by in the mall, he'll spend five minutes filling out Stuff While his wife is, is shopping, he'll make use of his time and he'll fill that, those things out as much as he can. The, uh, the, 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 the phone call that you get asking, you know, saying you have won a new whatever. He'll talk to them and he'll say, I'm not going to buy anything from you, but whatever contest you've got, put me in it. And he will give them his information. Now, he gets an insane amount of sales calls. He just doesn't answer any of them. And he gets all kinds of junk mail, but he just throws it away and recycles it. He doesn't really care. It doesn't bother him. I don't know that whatever you're going to win is worth all the harassment that you're going to get after all that kind of stuff. But that's what he does uh, on top of that, his retired mom would just sit at home and like, fill out forms for him and for his family for them to win things. Just over and over and over. I can't imagine the amount of like, spam and malware that is on her computer. It's got to be, it's gotta be a lot. Uh, but he, he, he does this and he's won all kinds. And a few years ago, he won his biggest contest ever. He won two tickets to the national championship uh, football game. Uh, It was a game between Auburn and Oregon, if you remember when that game was. And now here's the thing. He was a big Auburn fan. He had always been a big Auburn fan. And so this was perfect for him. It was also airfare. They played out in Phoenix. So it was airfare all the way out to Phoenix. It was a... Uh, a week's hotel stay, I think all the meals were covered, it covered a rental car, covered limo service to and from the game, it was a crazy price package that he had won from something his mom had submitted online for him to win, it was crazy, it was a great package, and I asked him, how can you sell that, because you need to sell that, now you need to understand, his tickets were on the 50 yard line, about 30 rows up, prime seats, as good as it gets, he could have gotten probably three to four thousand dollars a piece for those tickets. So we're talking six to eight thousand dollars. He probably could have gotten for the tickets alone. Now you have to remember, he's got to pay taxes on this stuff too. So he's got to report whatever the value is for the, the, the winnings on this thing. And this was valued well over $15,000. I don't know what it was. But uh, I said, you need to sell these tickets. You need to make sure that you do that. But he couldn't decide because you could sell the, the, the game tickets, but you couldn't sell the rest of it. You couldn't sell the airfare and all that. That was tied to you. So he said, I'm at least going to take a free vacation to Phoenix. I said, go to Phoenix and do... Whatever there is to do in the desert. I don't know what there is, but sell the tickets. You're crazy not to do that. And he said, really, it all depends on who could go with him to the game. He said if his wife was able to go to the game, they were going to go to the game. Because after all, as an Auburn fan, Auburn's playing in the national championship. He wanted to make sure, he's like, when else am I going to get to do this in in my life? Even if Auburn were to make it back to the national championship game, they're not going to make it back in you know, in a way where I can afford to go and pay the money for the ticket, so I would like to go. And I'm like, well, okay. I'd like to have a car. I mean, that's your choices that you can have, you know? And, uh, but he said he would like to go. He said it all depended on who went with him. If he didn't have his wife to go with him, then he was going to sell the tickets. But if his wife could go, then, she, then he would be able to do it. Now, she was not a big, uh, a big Auburn fan. In fact... I'm almost certain she was an Alabama fan, which is odd enough as it is, but uh, the, she wasn't going for the joy of going to, to the, the game and seeing her team win. She would have been going just for the chance to, to experience that with her husband. So you can understand how that works. And he says he, he would sell them unless she could go. And now as it turns out, she could go. And what he said is that he wanted to go with his wife because he wanted to create that memory together with her. He wanted to celebrate there with her and it wouldn't be the same if she wasn't there. So it all was dependent upon that. So he was trying to figure out, am I going to go to Arizona and golf all week or am I going to go to the game? She ended up being able to go. They went to the game. He's posting pictures all over Facebook of Auburn winning the national championship and whatever else they paid for to get that. And, uh, And he's doing everything that that any fan would would dream of, and he just wanted to make sure that he had the right person there to share it with. And I can understand this on some level. Me and my dad have gone to UT football games for pretty much, uh, for a a huge stretch of time. From the time I was in middle school all the way through college, we went to every home game at at UT in the 90s and the early 2000s, we went to uh, a, a ton of them. And going there with my dad was a special time. And I've been with others, and I would go with some buddies, but it was different when I would just go with some of my buddies. It was, a, it was just different to be there in a different way than sitting there with my dad. So if I get a chance to go with my dad, I like to do that, to kind of rekindle some of that and, and reminisce just a bit. And so the question that I've got for, for you guys is, if you had an opportunity for something like that, would you have gone? Or would you have sold the tickets? Or would you have gone with somebody else and said, I'm going with my buddy, I'm going to leave the wife and the kids at home, y'all stay here, we're going to go and we're going to golf and we're going to watch some football and we're going to do it all on somebody else's dime. What if it weren't a football game? What if it was something else? Some of you guys are sitting out there saying $8,000 or a football game. I'll take $8,000 and there's not much else to ask there. But what if it's something that you wanted deeply? Maybe something you'd worked for your whole life. For this moment, this kind of culmination of something. But whenever you got to this thing that you had worked for your whole life, what if you couldn't share it with a friend? Or with a family member? A spouse or a child? What if you couldn't share it with anyone? You were just kind of left to do it on your own. There would be no one to talk about or talk about it with or reminisce or... Would you still want it as bad, or would you maybe think, you know what, I think I'll just pass on this thing. Would you just walk away from it? Our text today, we're going to read about something Moses did that the more I read it, honestly blows my mind. He's going to walk away, or at least tell us that he would walk away from the thing that he wanted the most. Even something that he was promised he could have. He's going to be willing to walk away from. It's not something I've given a whole lot of thought to uh, in my life. I've, I've thought about this passage a lot, but not so much the way that God has kind of led me and opened it up to me this week. So let's read in Exodus chapter 33. We're going to start with the first few verses here, and we're going to read and talk just a little bit. So Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So, where we where we are here is a lot like what we saw last week. If you remember last week, Moses came down from Mount Sinai to find the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, to be in an idolatrous position, worshiping this calf, saying that this calf had brought them out of Egypt, robbing God of the glory. and And Moses came down and he saw that. And he said, "What are you guys doing?" Aaron said, "I don't know." They threw jewelry in there and a cow popped out, and that's how it all happened. Right? You remember how that happened uh, last week and. It's a story that came out of nowhere. It just didn't seem to fit with the flow of the, the narrative, but it, it's one that made sense to us and that we all know too personally. Walking away from a God worthy of praise for a lesser trinket. So now we go to chapter 33, and the refrain is much of what we saw last week. Remember when Moses was up on the mountain, God more or less looked at him and said, you need to go get your people that you let out of Egypt. The pronouns changed. Instead of saying, these are my people who I led out of Egypt, God now now says to Moses, you go get your people that you led out of Egypt. It all changed there. And again, we see something very similar to that. He's telling that he's going to keep this promise. God says to Moses, I'm going to keep my promise. You're going to get your land that I promised you. So I hope you guys are happy with that. Moses implored him to do that, to keep that promise. Remember, we saw that last week in his intercessory praise, that God, remember the promise that you have made. God says, fine, I'll remember the promise. But it's not quite going to look like you thought it would. Things are going to be a little bit different. The terms are going to be different. And God says, y'all go ahead. I'm just going to hang back here. Y'all go on. I'm just going to back away. He says, I'll take care of you. I'll clear the land. I'll send an angel before you. I'll wipe out these guys. The land will be yours. All you got to do is walk into it. It's yours. But I'm going to stay put. Y'all go on. Because if I go with you, I'm going to kill you. That's what he says. If I go with you, I'm going to kill you. Because you are an arrogant, stiff-necked, stubborn people. Now, I don't want to be flippant here because this is a pretty heavy, weighty passage. But you parents, do you ever get like this with your kids? Like, I know this feeling. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was here in this place at least a little bit. We were at home. We were supposed to be having a great Saturday. And let's just say that me and the kids were not on the same page with what was supposed to be happening that day. Right? We were just not in the same place. Everything that I had told them was supposed to be happening was not happening. They were doing one thing. I was expecting another thing. Emily's stressed out because we're just butting heads all over the place trying to figure out what in the world is going on. I knew that if we continued down this path, everything was going to end in tears for everybody. It was going to be bad news for everyone. And probably going to have to end with an apology on my part at some point on the back end. Right? I just knew that that's the direction things were going. I had to leave. I told Emily, you know what? I'm going to grab my keys. I got, got the keys and I headed out. I said, send me a grocery list. I'm going somewhere to the grocery store. She's like, well, where are you going? I said, not Food City. That's too close. I need one further away. <laughs> so I went, I went to Kroger in Sevierville. And I was like, I just got to get away and I need to be away. So I, I was gone, and, and, and I knew that my kids were driving me crazy, and it was going to be a big problem for me and a big problem for them if we stuck around. Now, I'm not advocating that we need to not discipline or any of that other stuff. I just knew this was a recipe for disaster, and I needed to get myself out of there for that day. Now, the difference between me and what God does in this passage is that I'm quite certain that a big chunk of my anger came from a fleshly, sinful place. God's anger here is righteous. It is a right response to sin. To the blasphemy of His name by His people. And God here in this passage is showing them grace. It doesn't look like that from our end, but He's showing them grace. Israel certainly didn't think it was grace. Look look at these next few verses. Verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So Israel went into a time of mourning. They went to a time of mourning for their sin, but even more more than that, they went to a time of mourning and sorrow for God's anger toward them. They desperately wanted God to go with them into the promised land. But God knew if things continued down the path that they were on, that things would end very poorly for them if things continued in that direction. And so God is saying, I can't go with you because I will destroy you. Trust me, this is for your own good that I do not go with you. Now Israel is right to mourn this. To lose God's presence is a terrible, awful thing. But God is trying to show them grace by not just carrying out the punishment upon them that He knows is inevitable. Friend, I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that God leaves us or abandons us this morning. We have a promise that He will never do that. But we must understand that God's grace does not always look, feel, or sound like God's grace. We like to equate grace with, with pretty journals and with, with, with great songs that we love to sing, like the one we just sang, which is a great song to sing. We like to uh, equate it with pretty journals and with like really curly fonts on coffee bugs. like that 's what we associate grace with. We like to equate grace with sunshine and with butterflies and beautiful things and flowers and and, and, and little, like little leaf petals with raindrops on them. That's what we think of when we think of grace. But sometimes grace is dark. It's painful. It's ugly. In fact, I would submit to you that, that most of the time when we see grace in Scripture, that's what it looks like. The majority of time when we see grace in Scripture, it looks much more like a thundercloud than it does a, a raindrop on a pedal. You see, grace always comes at a, cro- at a grace always comes at a cost to the one who extends it, and that's why the cross is such a grisly, painful, bloody, messy scene. That's why it is so dark and painful, because grace can look like that. Grace can be an illness or a job loss. Grace can be a broken-down car. Grace can even be in infertility and difficult marriages. Grace is messy. Grace is usually ugly. At least it is in the moment. Now the end result is beautiful. It is right for us to cherish the end result of grace and the beauty that comes with it. We'll see that as we finish out the book of Exodus and as we go back and look over the story of Israel in the book of Exodus. We will see that. But in this moment, for Israel, this is dark and it's painful. And it's very, very hard to see how this is grace. You see, it's grace that drives me to discipline my child, and it is grace that also extends forgiveness after the discipline, even in the midst of discipline. Perhaps this is encapsulated best, said best by John Newton in Amazing Grace. Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. At this moment, though, God is teaching Israel's heart to fear. So what do they do with this? What do they do with this ugly, painful, lonely, what's got to feel like abandonment here? Verse 7. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp. Now, this is not the tabernacle we read about a few weeks ago. This is kind of a makeshift tent that Moses would use to go meet with God until the tabernacle had been built and assembled. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Get this scene. All the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This scene to me is so dramatic. It is almost cinematic in the way that it is written. Like a screenplay from a movie. You can just see Moses moving through the camp. He opens the door. Everybody kind of sits up and sees Moses. And he goes walking through the camp. And everybody just kind of comes outside their tent right in front of their tent, and they just stand there, and they just watch him walk by. Just in silence. Just watching Moses. Because they know what he's about to do. It's a, it's a scene of high drama. Israel's desperately looking for someone to plead their case. To go to God and say, God, you please go with us. We know we don't deserve this, but but please go with us. They cannot plead their case because of their sin and their embarrassment. So they turn to their intercessor, to Moses, and they say, Moses, go be our representative before God. And they watch him as he strides step after step to the tent to see if he could perhaps sway God. And what we're going to see here is that Moses is going to ask God for three things when he goes into this tent, when he goes to meet with God, to speak with him as a friend speaks with a friend. He's going to ask God for three things, to show him his ways, for God to show Moses his ways, for God to to go with Israel on their journey, and for God to show Moses his glory. Now, we're only going to get to two of those today. We will come back to the third one here in a few weeks. But for today, we're only going to get to the first two. He's going to ask God to show him his ways. And he's going to ask God to go with Israel on their journey. So look in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways. So Moses says, look, you, you tell me all these things about me. You say that i found favor in your sight. I'm saying, if that's really true, will you do this for me? Please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. So the first one, show me your ways. Moses is not interested in playing around with religion here. Moses knows what religion looks like. It looks like a golden calf that came out of a fire that was made by hands. It looks like what he had saw, what he had seen coming up in Pharaoh's court whenever he was young. It looked like it looked like all these deeds that were that were done in order to appease all these different gods in Egypt. He knows what religion looks like. But he's not going to God saying, give me the checklist. Give me the magic formula. Give me the Christian combination to get God's blessing. He doesn't want to know that. And too often, this is how we approach the Christian life. And this is what so many think biblical Christianity is. That if we do good... However you define good, maybe you define good as social justice, maybe you define good as reading your Bible, maybe you define good as giving money on a Sunday morning at church, maybe you define good as showing up at church on a Sunday morning, maybe you define good by the way that you are, the, the way that you parent, or the way that you're a spouse, or the, whatever. But we define biblical Christianity as if we do good, God will do good in return. That is not Christianity. That is more akin to Karma than it is to Christianity. That is not biblical Christianity. Moses doesn't want to know the recipe. He wants to know the chef. And do you see the difference in those things? He's not coming to God saying, give me the deeds to do so that I can make you happy. He's coming to God and he's saying, I want to know you. And that if I know you, you can teach me how to cook. You can teach me how to make all these things because I have a relationship with you. I don't want the recipe. I can get that from a book. I want the relationship because I I can't get that anywhere but at your feet. So he asked God, show me your ways that I may know you. Show me your ways that I may know you. I want to know who you are. I want to know what you do. I want to know what you would have of me. Don't misunderstand, obedience is huge here. We'll talk about that here in a couple of weeks as well. And he wants to find God's favor. I'm not knocking that either. But in order to do it, he knows that he needs to know more about who Yahweh is. You can't have obedience if you don't have relationship. You can have rules that you follow. But that's different than obedience rooted in the character and the nature of God. Part of obedience is the willingness to know the person that makes the commands. And when you know his heart, then we can say right along with John and 1 John that his, his commands are not burdensome. So how well do you know God? Do you know him or do you just know a bunch of rules surrounding him? All the things you're supposed to do. How much do you pursue Him? How much do you do what Moses has done here? Plead with God for Him to reveal Himself to you, for Him to to, to teach you more about who He is so that you can know His character. How much do you do that? The great thing is that God tells us He'll reveal Himself in these days through His Son, through His Spirit, and through His Word. We have all of those things so that we can know God. You don't have to just kind of close your eyes and say, God, I want to know you more. Make me feel something inside. That's That's not what it looks like to get to know God. What it looks like to get to know God is to submit to Him, to read the Word, and to feel the Spirit. If you are a Christian, if you are following Him, to feel how the the, the Spirit convicts you through the Word and through what God has revealed about Himself and His Son. Moses may may have spoke with God as a friend speaks with a friend. That's a pretty amazing sentence, isn't it? To think about that. That you could sit down here on the chairs and you could have a conversation with, with God the way that you would speak with a friend. But friends, he's never had the living God inside of him. And we do. It's easy to read that and be like, oh, I'm so envious of that relationship that, that Moses has with, with God and the way that God would show up. And I keep harping on this in this series, but I'm telling you, Moses would, it would have blown his mind To know all the things that we know. He had such a small picture of who God was, and his obedience was rooted in that small picture. In theology, we call this progressive revelation. So Moses knew something then, but how much more do we know now? We have the the, the body of the Old Testament. We have the body of the New Testament. We have the Spirit living inside of us. And progressively, God shows us who He is through His words. We know so much more about God than even Moses did. Does that not blow your mind? It blows my mind every time I consider it. Moses' faith was rooted in such a small picture. But man, if he had the same access that we have to know about God, he would it would radically change even Moses. And we have it all here in his word, in his son, and in his spirit. So after this pleading, God says, okay, you've won me over. I'll go with you. Now, I could camp here and we could spend the rest of the time talking about prayer, but I'm not going to. But listen, prayer, the prayer that Moses offers there alters the 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 course that god had had said he was going to take that should blow your mind too but he does it he prays god answers he says okay i'll go with you if that's what you want i will uh, i'll go but that's not enough for moses even that he wants to be sure look in verse 15 he said to him if your presence will not go with me do not bring us up from here For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? These couple of verses, I'm telling you, have become some of the most extraordinary in Scripture to me. The depth of Moses' dependence on God is astounding, and to us it should be instructive. Let's remember where we are. God has freed His people brought them out of Egypt, promised them a land where they can be free, where they can grow, where they can prosper, where they can establish their own land, their own nation. They can build things with their own hands. They can put down roots and build buildings and create cities. He said, you're going to get all of these things. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's brought them to Sinai, and they've just kind of stopped they just kind of stopped. They've been here for months at this point, so much so that they're, they're trying to figure out, Moses, when are you even going to come down from that mountain? We don't even know if we can trust you, Moses, so we're going to make this calf that we can worship just to cover our bases. And they've just stopped. Moses is going up and down the mountain, up and down the mountain, getting these words from God, and the people are getting restless. And the people are rebelling. And finally, God gives them what they want, what they've been promised. And Moses says, No, I'm not going to take it. He gives them exactly what they want, exactly what they've been promised by God Himself. And Moses says, No, I'm not going to take it. Do you value your relationship with God that much? Now, I know we're at church, I know what you're supposed to say, but sometimes the hardest place to be honest is in church. Do you value your relationship with God that much? Or do we really just want the stuff that he promises? Or the stuff that we even think he might have for us? The stuff that's supposed to come with being good. The stuff that's supposed to come with following all the rules and checking all the boxes. Would you turn down everything you've ever wanted if God wasn't in it? The house, the car, the perfect spouse, the two and a half kids, the six-figure dream job, the luxury car, the great body, the respect of your peers, the PhD, or whatever it is that you so desperately want, would you turn it all down if if it meant that you only got it if God wasn't in it? This is everything that Moses has wanted. Even in his hesitation to go and lead the people, he knew what God had promised and he knew where he was going to take them. What if you've been promised all those things? None of us are promised all those things, despite what all the health, wealth preachers will tell you, despite what all they will tell you. None of us have been promised even one of those things that I listed there or whatever other thing you want to come up with. But what if you had been personally told by God, you get to have those things. Those are yours. I promise you, you get those things. And then he offers them. Would you take it if he said you can have them, but I'm not going to be in it? I know I'd like to say that I would say no. But I'm aware enough of my flesh and my sin to know that it would be at the very least a battle. For Moses, he isn't fighting a battle. If God isn't in it, he doesn't want it. And there's no question. He even doubles back. God says that he'll go. And he's like, no, 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 we need to be sure here. I'm telling you, if you won't go, we won't go. He knows that God's presence is the very thing that defines them. Not the land, not the development, not the cities, not the riches, not the land flowing with milk and honey, not what they can produce. None of that is what defines them. It is God who marks them. I mean, look what he says in verse 16. Is not your going with us so that we are distinct? I love that right there. So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every every other people on the face of the earth. Friends, I want to lay this out there for you. If God isn't in it, it is not for us. For too many of us, our lives can look like we have everything that God has promised. Or at the very least, everything that we think we have earned. And we hope that God will offer his blessing. But God isn't in it. We have built our lives on a foundation of good works. We've built our lives on a foundation of material things that give us an appearance of godliness, perhaps. Certainly an appearance uh, appearance of success. We build our lives on those things, but in the end, they don't require Him to show up at all. It's easy to do that on Sunday mornings for church, too. We can play the right songs. We can, we I, I can offer up the right kind of guilty conscience message message for you. You can drop your offering box in the or your offering check in the box in the in the back, and and we can all do it every Sunday, and it can look so godly. But there was no need for the Spirit to show up for any of it, because we can do it all without the Spirit. The question that you have to ask is: Are we? Are you a distinct people? What has set you apart? Are we marked by His name? Are we forever changed and made different? Have you been marked and set apart? Are you distinct? Now we are not distinct because we create our own little Christian subculture that that, that seeks to kind of divide us from the world. That's not what I'm talking about. You can do that without the Spirit too. We are distinct when our lives, when we live our lives in ways that make absolutely no sense apart from the fact that God has called us to do it. You see, when the world sees us going after the same things that they go after, just with Christian vocabulary to accompany it, they laugh at us, and rightfully so. For we make a mockery of God when we do it. When we seek political power with the same desperate longing that they do, then what they see is that we value the same thing. We just stick a prayer on it. When we seek stuff with the same passion that they do, they see that we want the same things that we do. And there's really no difference in us at all. When we respond to things, when we fight with one another with snark and with biting remarks, when we hold grudges, when we lose our minds over small matters, the world sees that and smirks because they do it too. And they know we're no different than them. But when we are marked by God, our language will sound different. Our political involvement will look different. Our marriages will, will at least function on some way differently. Our, our desire for the stuff of this world will fade as theirs even intensifies. And when we lose all these things, we will do so in a way that displays that we have a hope far beyond a politician or a trinket or a golden calf. Paul exhorts us to live like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Do you understand what he's saying there? If you are different, if you are marked to be different, you will, you, you will give off an aroma that says that you're different. Have y'all ever eaten at Subway and you stink the rest of the day? I don't understand how that works. They have the same ingredients that the other subplaces do, but they don't smell nearly as bad. But you go to Subway, you're going to smell like Subway the whole day. You're going to give off the aroma of Subway, right?